Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddham Dhammang Sangang Namasami So, the practice is very uh, personal, very intimate, and some ways you feel you're really kind of on on your own, with your own stuff, karma, condition, conditioning, so on. Yet notice that uh, a lot of, you know, the, the... Occasions for practice, situations of practice are often shared group situations. And I think it's just for convenience sake, you know, just to stick everybody under the same roof because it's cheaper on the heating bills. <laughs> There's something about uh, being in a group that can have uh, be beneficial if you understand it in the right way. So the image or the word is sangha, assembly, gather together punya ketang, a field of benefit, beneficial field. It's interesting. Yeah, field, and it's a. It's a little more than a group, it's a field. So it's not really even a matter of individuals, but a sense of something that's generated by uh, people practicing together. Certain atmosphere, you could say. Um, perception, certain tonality, certain sense of... Something we can sense, actually, when we meditate. Perhaps not properly in words, but we just maybe notice something about the steadying effect or the stabilizing effect or the aspiring effect. It's a field effect. Which means it's not any particular point or particular individual. Something about the something's generated. When you think of magnetic fields, you know, it's a good way to look at it. When people start, and it's often the case on when I teach retreats, you know, you get maybe 60, 70 people. Day one, it's 60 or 70 people. Day two, it's 60 or 70 people. By day five, it's a group. And people have not talked to each other, not made, a lot, not made contact often, you know, to a, to a very strong degree, you know, unusual degree. It's not through contacting each other on that individual level, but just by sitting together, being together, sharing space together, moving around in the same way, particular field starts to occur. And by the end of the retreat, generally there's this immense feeling of fellowship and harmony until people start talking to each other. (laughs) It starts to break up. (laughs) You know, it's like on the personality level, there's this great sense of difference, and uh, and then when you kind of sense of soften and get below that or beneath that, there's some sense of uh, strange. You can't. It's not a thought. It's not an idea. It's not an emotion. But it's something there. Mm. This is a strong feature of uh, practice. Actually, you go to uh, Thailand, and 
these they have the big one of the big things is to have these big get togethers, you know. And what for? I mean the teachings are pretty much things you've heard, chanting you've heard, people you know, but somehow there's something generated and people go to these occasions for the inspiration and the energy and the quality of belonging and perhaps something that's even more difficult to put in words. So this uh, this um, funeral of Tanajan Mahabur and they say about a million people turned up. That's a pretty big field, a million people. <laughs> so I mean, his monastery couldn't fit in the monastery, so it's just the monastery was in the middle of it and it just flowed out in each direction. <laughs> there was something like 30,000 monks, imagine 30,000 monks in the, uh, yeah. 4,000 monks at the Patimoka <laughs> recitation. 4,000, 30,000. You know, so what are they for? Somebody's died, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, some sense in which the, the theme, veneration, the sense of arahant or, you know, enlightened being, is tuning into that theme and picking up that sense and everybody, you know, that's the unifying theme. And the sense of respect and gratitude and appreciation, inspiration, all those are there in that. And people just plug into it and get a big um, lift from that. No, just people aren't stupid. It's not superstition. People are getting something. (coughs) Encouragement, confidence, you know, a sense of ability to persevere beyond one's normal boundaries. Mm. Sharing, <laughs> kindness, sense of humani- common humanity, coming out of the isolation of individuality, of the personality forms. Mm. And so the people, it's something that happens, field effects. And of course, there are negative fields. You get mobs, you get the Nuremberg rallies, you get, you know, suddenly everybody's captured by a negative um, impression and a negative field generates, which takes people beyond their personalities in a demonic way, evil way. So it's just this is not a, a religious thing. This is just, a, you know, something that happens with people. And I think perhaps other creatures too, you know, flock creatures pick up that sense of belonging and uh, they are somehow then into something that's got a communality and a, and, a, and a purpose and a sense of energy that's beyond themselves as individuals. But then he's right, you know, using this for Dharma practice, really. And it's nothing, you don't exactly do anything. You just uh, start to come to that place, perhaps, which can realize that partly because it's not even uh, this is an interesting phenomenon but also what is it that can sense that it's not an idea you know well, you can hear it as an idea what do fields of merit mean strange expression fields of benefit and then uh, you can take something from that, like a Buddha image or a, an element of that, and that kind of carries the, the meaning, the token of it. So this is part of that, that aspect of practice. You take something from that and you put it on your shrine and it, it's, it carries it, it captures that meaning. It's like a, it's a holistic, it's a hologram. So any, any part of it will carry the whole thing. What relics are about, and those uh, um, features of, of a Dhamma fields. It's a bone, you know. What's the point of having a bit of bone on your shrine? You know, it's not like having a fish bone or a something you chewed over, a dog bone, but you know, it carries <laughs> the sense of. Uh, you know, the sacred, and, and then you just plug into it. You can 
You know, it's difficult to say how you do that. But uh, as a meditator, you begin to sense the limitations of the uh, one's personal realm, which is pretty bleak, actually. You look at it. You know, we're finite, separate. We're always separate. We something that wants to be. You know, welcome, fit in, belong, feel okay with others, feel, you know, we're in something good. And yet it gets very confusing. Because on a personality level, we're always separate. And, uh, and that's uh, really quite difficult to experience, feel alone. So where there isn't this sense of a field, people often get very desperate and depressed. I think that's why people go to football matches and rock concerts and things like that, just to feel they're part of something. Without that, you know, just being an individual on your own in a world of competition is pretty tough. And a huge amount of anxiety and depression in the Western world. Number one, life impairment is that. Number one, more than heart disease or cancer. But if we don't exactly find that in another person, or you may do, if you're lucky, something like it, but you can also find that quality in the field of merit, the field of sangha, the field of practice. And uh, hopefully when we, when we do a retreat together, uh, something is kindled there, something is awakened to that, and you take that, you remember that, and you, you know you can go to that place. Now, one of the, um, you know, there's different levels of realization, and they represent um, um, passing through or break, passing through certain um, grounds, you might say, certain uh, places where we, we tend to identify. And the, f- the first one is the major one in many ways because you, then you realize there is a beyond, a beyond your normal personal world and it's accessible and it's not spooky, it's a relief. It doesn't deny your personal world but it sets it in something bigger sense. This is called the stream entra. And so in this there are, the whole process of realization is, is uh, listed by the Buddha in terms of breaking through ten fetters. And this is very, um, you know, Theravada and hardcore because rather than the laxing, waxing lyrical on the bounteous beauties of liberation, uh, the Buddha says, yeah, yeah, you know, there are actually, that's true, but another thing to keep your eye on is these particular fetters. Because you can get degrees of liberation and think you've got it, you are it, because you, you've got some sense of release. And yet the sense of self still pertains at a subtler level. So he taught these ten fetters as a kind of checklist. And there are some you know, interesting examples where he says, you know, someone like a skilled contemplative or a practitioner or a sage may very well feel, you know, they've had some realization, they say, I am liberated. I have realized the bond. I am beyond clinging. And the sense of I am is still there. It's like somebody, you know, you're in a prison and you manage to bore a hole through the wall of this lightless, airless prison. And you suddenly you feel so wonderful because there's daylight streaming in and fresh air streaming in. And you can see outside and you think, oh, I'm free. <laughs> now you've done some great work, actually, because until you did that, you didn't even know there was anything. So this is the major one. But to call yourself free just because you can get a fresh 
breath of fresh air and see some daylight. It's a bit of an exaggeration, isn't it? So, but actually, this is the stream entry. They managed to actually break through the wall of self and see fresh air and you know and daylight, clarity, and and yeah, wow, it's open. And yet, there's still more to be done. So, once you've seen that, you do realize this thing can shift. So it's both seemingly not that major, and yet it is major. And well, these first, this is through breaking through three fetters, and they're they're interlinked. There's personal called Sakaya Ditti, roughly means something like um, a view or an assumption of being. Uh, within your body, you know, sort of like you're up in, you're the person inside your body, doing things. There's often a kind of a sense we have of being a little person up in our heads, and we're operating things, operating this body. So it's it's very much that, and so we see ourselves as separate individuals. This is actually quite this is the norm, and of course it's it's quite miserable. <laughs> Because you're always trying to control it and figure it and do things with it, and there's a sensual sense of you're in this and something out there that you're not part of. Yeah. And so that's the first of these fetters. The second is called um, doubt, uh, uncertainty, or wavering, uncertainty in regards to Dhamma. You don't have a realization, you don't have an actual experience, so you don't really know whether it works, you're trying to figure it, you don't not certain this, that or the other. Is this going to be work for me? Should I do more samatha, vipassana, Tibetan, Zen, Zogchen, Jhana? And people very this is quite common, you know. How much samatha do I need before I do vipassana? Is jhana like this or jhana like that? And you're always trying to get some kind of view that will you think, oh that's the right thing but it never quite works because it still remains up in your head as an idea. You haven't had a realization. And trying to fit, it's like trying to fit something, the Dhamma into, into, uh, into, into words and ideas and it doesn't quite happen. The third is called um, Sila Vata, Paramasa, which is fondling, paramasa being infatuated with or fondling or wrong use, distorted use of sila and vata. Sila means something like, generally, in the broadest sense, it means, you know, do's and don'ts, your customs. Obviously, more specialized sense, it means morality, but we might also say it's our behavioral customs. And then vata is things we do repeatedly duties, routines, our systems, so customs, systems. Sometimes it's translated as rites and rituals, but of course, you know, it's not like everybody's doing sort of, you know, pujas to Vishnu or something, uh, or sacrificing goats. It's much more basic than that. And it's we tend to... um, Adopt particular customs, ways we do things, my way of doing things, whether it's playing tennis, playing chess, getting through a day, my daily week, you know, my, my thing, my operation, my routines, you know, and um, how I do things, my style. And people do this, you know, and all these, th- these three are, are pretty much basic forms of human behavior, and they're not wrong. They are, they're not wrong. They are almost inevitable. We do have a personality. So psychiatry is often called personality view. Which a personality view means that we can say, I feel like this and you're like that and this is what we're going to do about it. We can operate together as separate beings. And personality is the means with which we receive other people and express ourselves. If you didn't have a personality then, you know, you just get this, whatever you're feeling comes out of your mouth or whatever. So a personality filters that out and says, well, this is the right thing to do or say at this time. 
And naturally we do want to understand the teachings with our brains, get some good ideas about it. That's important. And all of us use systems and customs and conventions and rules and routines, and that's fine too. The problem is when we get stuck in them so that no other system but mine is going to work. Um, Or we rely upon our personality to give us happiness or we get egocentric. It's got to be my way. Or we get opinionated my views on Dhamma are the only ones that are worthwhile. I've really got it. And, (laughs) you know, these sorts of things. And, uh, of course, the Buddha gave these similes, he said, you know, the Dhamma's like a snake, which is an interesting kind of way of talking about it, isn't it? Rather than the Dhamma is like a lotus or a light of liberation, the Dhamma's like a snake. And he said, if you, if you grab it by the tail, you grab it wrongly, it whips around and gives you a venomous bite. So you've got to grab it behind the head. And if you just grasp it wrongly, then it does you harm. This is the Buddha talking about his own teaching. (laughs) And the other simile he gave in the same discourse was the simile of the raft. Use these structures, systems, techniques, like a raft to get across the stream of um, suffering, conflict, confusion, floods of the influxes, the asava. But you don't carry it around on your head. You get on it, use it where you want to go, you know, get out of suffering, and then that's that's done. Then you can leave the raft there for somebody else to use. When I first came across this, I thought this is incredible that the, you know, this teacher is actually saying even his own teachings are just this much, rather than his teachings are just exactly it and so forth. Um, but it's just this: it's a raft, it's a vehicle. And I thought this is really quite inspiring to have somebody with such incredible integrity and clarity about what he was offering it's like a ladder you know use it and what this does is, is we, we if we come out of these what these three together because they're, they're said to the three simultaneously kind of break in other words they're three aspects of a similar uh, form, you might say an energetic form or a field, which is the person, the personal me, I do it, I've got it sorted out, I figure it, up in my, in my stuff, my practice, that, you know, that way in which we conceive of Dhamma and ourselves as isolated individuals who are going to do something and get somewhere. And so that particular form of, of where minds work yeah. and it says, you know, so you actually you sort of come out of that you realize well that one's never going to get enlightened it's not bad but it's just a limited very limited form that's going to be struggling or opinionated or you know in some it's, it's not going to widen and broaden into something bigger than that And of course, we realize that, that, that actually to have, to have come past that is considered a, a major and wonderful realization that the Buddha said is available for many, many people. You know, if they, they have, and he said basically, if you have complete confidence in the, Buddha, in the refuges, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and you can keep five precepts. That's one definition of it. So it's not that uh, far off. And of course, other people might it sound so simple. You think, no, no, wait a minute. <laughs> You've got to be more than that, surely. <laughs> but what these terms actually mean, we'd have to meditate on and contemplate and perhaps tease out. You know, what does it really mean? Complete confidence in Dhamma it means no matter what happens, you still you know, maintain that sense of dispassion, detachment, you know, you're not spasming or contracting around anything. You know, you, you, you remain in that field of Dhamma. 
So in this sense of, you know, coming to something bigger than that. And it's just really interesting to, to look at that, the list of the fetters, because the next lot, you know, the, after that you've got the first three, it's a stream entry, then you've got the next fetter is called um, Kamaraga, Kama, Kamaraga or Kamachanda, Kamaraga, I think, which is basically um, uh, this uh, thirst, passion around sensuality. Then you get uh, ill will or irritation. Next one. Then, so you see, stream mantra still got those. So most of us are kind of worried about our uh, irrit- irritability or our sense desires, but actually the Buddha is saying, well, that, that, that comes later, you know. I mean, does, these are not irrelevant, but, you know, that's kind of a little bit further along the path. If you can just get past the sense of taking it all so personally. <laughs> You know, to keep forming yourself around it, that's the problem. Then once you get out of that, then you get onto the actually cleaning this other stuff out. Um, uh, and so then, the ne- then after that we have uh, attachment or, or um, what is it, bawa, which means a sense of becoming, um, it's me, rupa raga, which means you get excited or you're passionate around form. And what this means doesn't mean... Um, it means like um, states of absorption, subtle form. So you really, you know, get into jhana, you think, oh, wow, I'm here, this is it, I'm nibbanic, I'm right there, you know. And you rather like it. And you have arupa raga, which means you get even, uh, you get past that and you get attached to formless states. You know, you kind of, you think you're it because you've got some formless state of meditation. And you're very much attached and fond of those. And your mind keeps going there. And then, then, yeah. And this lot, are, are the, the, those drop away for someone called a, one, a non-returner. Yeah. And uh, the, the, what's called a once-returner has, has severely weakened their influence. What this refers to is how we're affected, isn't it? Our sense of pleasure. So naturally our karma, karma is about pleasure and of course uh, there's the pleasure of absorption. It's also about the absence of pleasure. It's in irrit- why we get irritable is when we're loss of it. So it's to do with our more emotional, affective experiences. That, you know, whatever our ideas are, are about, you know, you can have a, you know, what really, at the end of the day, really moves you is how is pleasure and pain. It's what really gets you going, you know. You don't argue with pleasure and pain. <laughs> Some kind of amazing idea, but then if pain comes along, suddenly you forget the idea and go deal with the pain, you know. So this is a kind of far more instinctive level. And after that we have the next three is uh, conceit, which means some sense of imagining you are something. doesn't mean pride. Obviously pride is a crude form of it. It means conceiving yourself, mana. I am this pure awareness. I am the big self beyond the little self. I am the knower of the mind. I am, you know some vague way in which that still seems a pertinent statement. And restlessness, which is the sense of which, you, you know, as we, even your mind is very still and calm, there's still has some sense of it being shifted around, trying to find some place to settle. And ignorance is the last. So these are dispelled by the Arahant. And these are to do with states of being, like a sense of ontology, you know, the fundamental quality of awareness, which when, we, when the mind becomes very equanimous and open and still, then we may not indeed be, we find that that's somehow a, a more resolute, a more uh, comprehensive uh, foundation than just feeling. 
So then you come to the level of awareness and, and that, that becomes something you feel, you know, you're in this really steady, imperturbable state. This is where I am, this is what I am, you know. And then the, the, the arahant has got beyond that. He doesn't have, actually have any impression <laughs> of that. Now, of course, um, you know, it's not that arahant doesn't experience a personality or pleasure or pain or jhana or awareness, but realizes it's just that. These are, of course, incredibly um, profound <laughs> realizations. But it gives you a sense almost the prioritization of it. And for most of it, it's going to be dealing with this first level and, uh, and how actually the, the sense of the, uh, you know, a group or a field is a very helpful um, focus for sensing, you know, the limitations and the obstructiveness of the, the purely personality-based realm. Personality-based realm is, is often associated with uh, opinions, views, agreement, disagreement, um, you know, uh, taking a stand on something, um, some arrogance maybe, or some sense of, of personal failure, you know, like I'm a, you go from one extreme to the other, doesn't it? One could be either feeling you've really got it all together, you've got it all sorted out, or you're a miserable basket case who's got a clue. Yeah. And you can swing from one to the other in the course of a day. <laughs> you know? And it's a case, you can see, that actually what we begin to keep reminding ourselves is this is the field of, are you in are you in field of sila? Then, you know, whatever your mind thinks you are, Whatever your mind says you are, whatever your history and your muttering thoughts say you are, you are in sila, you're in morality. You know, just, just tune into that. Let the other gibbering noises in your head, you know, don't give them a lot of food, don't give them a lot of attention, just to tune into, you know, right now you can do good. You know what that is. You know what, you yeah. And the quality of samadhi, you know what's stillness or relative still, which leads to stillness or not. Whatever your opinions are about yourself, whatever your thought process about yourself, where do you find that sense of collecting, steadying, and what do you need to do to, to get to be there? Acceptance, kindness, patience, you know. Often accepting this personal self for what it is doesn't mean approving of it or but just there it is everybody's got one they bounce up and down they make noises <laughs> so you just open up a big feather bed for them to jump up and down and say okay there you are you know just this sense of widening you know, the mind. So the mind is capable of just receiving the struggling personality. Yeah. I think it's really helpful because it's not dismissing it. It's not buying into it. It's just saying, yeah, there is this. And yet, one can be bigger than that. And this is a very um, fine practice, actually, because you really see the sense of irritation with yourself, views about yourself, one way or another, trying to prove yourself or trying to, you know, or denying aspects of your personality as, I didn't really see that, <laughs> you know, or getting fed up with it. And you say, no, no, no this is, none of this is going to work, you know. It's not that it's, it's just it's not going to work. You've got to get bigger than that. So it's an incredible training in, in compassion, equanimity, patience, and real kitchen sink kindness. On a, not on an idealistic level.
takes you to the place where it really takes you to the only place where you can accept and be with this personality is, is, you know, at the place that's bigger than that. That's quite an accurate avenue, you know, for realization. Not trying to fix, change, understand, explain. We just widening, accepting it as it is. What is it then? Is it a person? No, it's not a person, actually. It's a series of thoughts and emotions and mental processes, emotional processes, psychological processes, character traits. It's actually a dynamic stream of this chart. It's not actually anybody there. It's rather like a dripping tap, you know. It's not actually a a solid thing at all. It's just drips and streams and trickles and surges. There's nothing, nobody there to forgive or excuse or redeem or abolish. It's just that, you know. That's the sense, really, of what, you know, realization, liberation is. It's not getting rid of something, but apart from this clinging, taking a stand on, attachment to, getting bound up in. That's the thing that's abolished. But when that is abolished, then the personality, because there's less stress and strain and pressure and denial in it, starts to even out. To a degree, anyway. You know, someone like Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabur, still distinct personalities, quite different characters, you know. Apparently Ajahn Mahabur is a pretty ferocious kind of personality. And Ajahn Chah could be a range of things. You know, could be extremely warm and uh, ebullient and chirpy and cheerful, and then sometimes quite stern and sometimes... Nobody there. Hmm? So it wasn't there wasn't any personality, but there wasn't some continual, you know, engagement with that, and and um, you know, getting caught up in it. So you see what you have to do. Of course, our meditation practice is very much, you know, as we start, we operate from the only thing we've got going, which is our personal resolve, our personal interest. You can't start from some place of complete non-attachment and purity. You start from where you are. And in that, you're, you're developing some focus, some resolution, some patience, and you're getting some good feedback from that. And you're starting to see, because of that, the hindrances and also the kind of the background of the real problem behind the hindrances, you know, is this sense of, of um, I am, I need to be something, um, I don't, you know, I've got to get somewhere or I can't get somewhere or I'm this or I'm that, this background um, judgment. Well, sometimes people think they're enlightened, you know. Amazingly enough. Well, it's not obviously negative, but uh, it's a sort of assumption that we get from being the doer. Because that's what the personality realm is about. It's about speaking and doing and you know, interacting. So there's a, there's an assumption of being the agent of Dhamma. And I think one of the <coughs> snags, particularly if you have these, you know, intensive retreats or even teaching a lot of meditation, is that, you know, when we te- teach meditation... Unfortunately, it can give rise to the, to what I think is a, is a slightly difficult impression that it's all about doing things, you know. 
it's about focusing and concentrating and then uh, getting to be more mindful and developing this and seeing that. And that's, yeah, how else do you put it? But a lot of it's about what's done to you. A lot of it's about, you know, you do things and then you just be with. You know, what, what happens to you is a process that starts to happen through that. That uh, we, uh, you know, So you do some. It's not that you don't do anything. But what essentially you're doing is you're starting to enter the field of Dhamma. And then it starts to work on you. And that's one way of putting it. As they say in the chanting, the Dhamma supports those who support it. As you start to be that with that integrity, it, it starts to do things, you know. I remember I used to have a lot of um, problems with sleepiness in the mornings, dullness in the mornings. And, you know, and then you're trying to kind of pull it out, pull out of it, straighten up. You know, you're sitting there, you're holding your body up. Doing, wow, it's gone, you know. <laughs> and you sort of, right, you sit with your eyes open. My goodness, how do they get closed? It just the thing just comes up like a sumi wrestler, and wham slams on you, you know, and you're, you're sitting there. I'm really awake, and there's this funny sound of heavy breathing. Somebody's sleeping. You realise it's you. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? <laughs> well, somebody's tapping you. What do you mean I'm sleeping? <laughs> you open your eyes, and you, you see the floor in front of you. Goes, yeah. Oh dear, and. Uh, <laughs> So they just struggle and make it, trying the things, and then caving in and so forth. And it's kind of gone on for years, really, not, not getting through it. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it doesn't seem to happen anymore. <laughs> I don't remember one day when I got out my Vajra sword and slashed the hindrance to ribbons. Uh, it just sort of wore out. Sticking with it, you know. It sort of wore out. That's a lot of what it's about, really. <laughs> Very ignoble, isn't it? You know, and it, but it's, again, it's not through not doing anything. You don't wear it out by lying in bed. <laughs> you know, until the, until the <laughs> factors have arisen by themselves. So there's a certain sense in which you keep you know, applying yourself with integrity, but then in some ways the, the thing is not overcome by oneself, one's personal thing, personal agent, takes you to the place where that can start to occur. So stuff starts, the energy starts to shift. And Buddha said it's like, um, imagine a, a, a an ocean-going um, ship and it's blown up on the beach and he says, just imagine those, those, those ropes, the, the rigging and the ropes. Of the, and he says, they don't suddenly all go. But over time, they gradually fall away. The main, main thing is to get the ship up on the beach, get it out of the sea. It's not a very positive image, is it? But he also used the image of a carpenter's ads which means you, as an ads is a tool. And he said, you know, you get this tool in your hand and after a few years, that there's an imprint of your hand on the handle. It starts to mould. Yeah. Remember this woodman, Dave Bridger, he used to work here. And his hands had kind of, over years, they'd been moulded so these tools fitted perfectly in his hands. It's like his hands were moulded by, by the tools and the tools were moulded to his hands. That doesn't happen on day one or day two or day 290. It's gradually, it starts to shape. Yeah? But you've got to keep picking the tool up. Yeah? You don't pick it up, it doesn't happen. Same thing, the, the ship has to be 
put up on the beach, otherwise it's not going to be exposed. The other image used was the chicken sitting on his eggs. And he said, you know, your chicken sits on its eggs, it doesn't have to say, oh, please, may my eggs be hatched. Oh, please, when will my eggs be hatched? You sit on your eggs, they hatch. But if you fuss around the nest, clucking and fretting and picking and pushing around, going, oh, wish these eggs would hurry up and hatch, and praying to them to hatch, <laughs> they're not going to hatch. You've got to sit on them. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Just sit on your eggs. They hatch. <laughs> it doesn't matter how hard you sit on them or soft, you just sit on them. <laughs> Don't break them, that's all. You know, so for the kind of personality view, that's a bit difficult. So, well, how long? Ten days? And how much do I, how hard, how long do I have to sit for? What kind of sitting should I do? And is this the best way to sit? Is it better to sit on your own in a forest? What kind of posture, you know? Is Zen sitting better? Tibetan sitting better? I want the quickest, best way to do it. Easiest way. Can I sit with props and cushions, supports, holding me up? And this attitude, you know, quickest, easiest, when am I going to get there, is the chicken running around the nest, poking away at the nest, you know. <laughs> so just sit on it. <laughs> you know what your eggs are, you know. <laughs> what your eggs actually are, what you've got to sit on, your, your virtue, your clarity, your kindness, your resolve, your integrity, you know. That's what, get to it. Don't get strung out by the systems or the techniques or the, Opinions about yourself or you know, all that stuff. This is the this is the first big breakthrough because now you get the sense of confidence in Dhamma. Not just in you know, it's not to say that you shouldn't study either, but you know, it's all fine. But the real um, that, that helps us to support. But then you get a confidence, a trust in, in the Dhamma as a, as a process and a practice and what realization actually is about. It's not about me having another nice experience. It's about something widening out of that, coming out of that. Less tension, less holding, less achievement, less loss, less I am about it all. It's a kind of surrender. Uh, peaceful, gentle, quiet, easeful quality. Mm. Which would make less and less claims, you know. Some someone's claiming they're enlightened. You want to what be very careful that people do that. Nothing really to claim. Imagine Char's famous uh, image was uh, the stream entry somewhere is not really that sure about things. You know, they've got past that sense of, oh, this is this and that's that, and this is right and that's wrong. And, well, you know, maybe it all depends. And then the once returner is even more unsure. Well, could, well, you know. And the non returner is very uncertain. The Arahant is completely uncertain. <laughs> they can't really make any kind of I am this or this is the way it should be about it. Anything. It's just. <laughs> so that's an interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? Rather than being more, you know, held, <laughs> more released from having to, you know, be something. But, you know, we can take that as an extreme. So, well, right, fine, why bother to meditate at all? Why bother to practice? I'm released already. <laughs> that isn't it either. It does require a lot of, uh, you know, practice. Because what, you, what you're really doing, in other ways, you're actually entering a field and the field does it. As you feel it, something pulls you out of your little narrowed vortex into something bigger. As you get into that, 
you stay with that, you tune into that, you get a sense of that, and that starts to move out to something bigger and wider till there's no more winding to do. It's 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 out, you know. But you've got to keep putting yourself in that place where you start to get a sense of where the Dhamma is flowing, where you're there, where the things are lining up. So it's both with practice and also beyond practice. And these are said to be irreversible. That is, once you've come to something bigger, you're not going to go back again. So it's not like a one-hit flash in the pan thing you had some big idea realization and oh that was it and then you no he said no once you've once you've tapped into that bigger thing you don't you don't go back so it's that you know so anything that we've just you know got to as something we can got this that one is not really it that that one's going to pass you know so uh, it's it's you know you've got to then get a sense of the real dispassion and cooling in the whole field is is the real process of the work practice.